Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Well, comrades, the, the German philosopher uh, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was born in 1770 and died in 1831. And he was one of the greatest minds to have ever walked the earth. He had an encyclopedic knowledge within a, a vast array of fields of, of history, of science, and of course, uh, of, about ideas. His works in philosophy in particular his logic and his phenomenology are unparalleled in their depth, scope, and detail. And you don't have to agree with Hegel in order to understand that uh, his penetrating method can raise important questions for everyone's mind. And yet, if you go to study philosophy at universities today, the chances are that you won't learn much uh, uh, about him or his works. Because here, for the most part, Hegel is, is really uh, uh, looked at with scorn, he's disliked, and in particular, one of, the most, uh, one of the things in particular which is hated about him is his concept of progress in history. Now, according to Hegel, not all societies are equal uh, and on the same level of development. Humanity, in other words, have come a long way from uh, the early stages of small groups wandering uh, the, 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 the earth uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago to the modern society that we have today. And most importantly for him, our ideas have developed. Uh, so according to Hegel, not all ideas are on the same uh, level. But this type of, this is so-called philosophy that's taught in academia today and in universities today. And this counts really for all the three main schools of, of philosophy today, the, the postmodernists, the positivists, and the, uh, the analytical philosophy. They all take a, a sort of a moralistic attitude to the question of culture and ideas. Because you see, we can't say that, uh, we can't call ideas bad or wrong. Except, of course, if it's the ideas of Hegel and Marx. Because that is a completely different thing. Those are old ideas. This is an old way of thinking. And we need to look, look at the world in a, in a completely new way. And here you might stop up and say, wait, wait a minute. We're just told that all our ideas are equal. Uh, there's no such thing as progress, i.e. nothing new is better than something old. And yet, we have to go looking for new ideas because the old ones are not good enough. Of course, this is complete nonsense, this is complete rubbish. Uh, and in reality, if there's one thing which defines Hegel more than any other philosopher, is his fierce opposition to this type of mental laziness to say things, just blurt out things without thinking about the consequences uh, 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 or, or conclusions of what you're saying. And, and that's the method which is so rife in academia today. Now, according to Hegel, ideas can't just be called philosophy just because they, they, they're proclaimed. They have to be justified, or rather, they must be proven by their own intrinsic coherence. But the question is, 
how do we prove ideas? How do we prove the, the, the ideas on the basis of their coherence? Can't we just make up an idea ourselves and then cl claim that it proved itself by making up some other ideas? Well, not according to Hegel. Uh, because what allowed Hegel's philosophy to advance far more than any other before him was the fact that he made the strongest case for the objectivity of knowledge. In other words, according to him, truth and knowledge are objective phenomena. They're independent of the individuals who, 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 the individuals who think them. I can think whatever I want, but that doesn't make it true. I can think that I can fly, and then I go jump out of this window. Well, nothing will happen because I'll just fall onto the street. But, so I certainly won't fly, won't I? Uh, and so we can say definitively that at least some ideas uh, are not true or not equally as true uh, as others. But then the question is, how do we arrive at objectively true ideas? How do we know things? And that's, uh, that's really the, 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 one of the important places where, where Hegel made enormous advances. Now, when I was a child, I used to be, when I was very small, I used to be very afraid of fire. I thought it was bad, in other words. But then, uh, once a year in Iran, where I grew up, you had this ceremony before Iranian New Year, there's fire on the streets, people are jumping over them, there's firecrackers, grenades, uh, all, sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of fun things. And I would see them, I would think, well, you know, um, I, was, I was getting intrigued, let's say, and I thought, well, maybe fire is not such a bad thing. Maybe, maybe it's actually fun. And then I remember one day, I was three or four years old, I was sitting with my cousin, we were playing with a lighter, and uh, we did this paper that we were holding caught fire and everything just started to unravel and we were panicked. And luckily, my uncle came in and stomped out the fire. So again, I concluded, fire is bad, <laughs> fire is not so good. Then I got a little bit older again, became a teenager. I developed uh, uh, you know, fine motor skills. I improved my reaction time. I'd seen barbecues and birthday cakes. I knew that you know, more or less how to, how to go about fire. So me and my cousin started experimenting with fireworks. And um, you know, we said, well, we, you know, we, we found out we could mix them. We could make bigger bombs than the ones you could buy. And, and suddenly fire was fun again, you know, uh, and life was good, so to say. Right until one day <laughs> where um, this, this, this the small bomb that we, we basically made <laughs> exploded right in my hand just when I was about to, to, to throw it. It ripped apart my gloves and it hurt quite a lot. Luckily, nothing was happening. I, I still have all my, all my fingers. But uh, that was my last lesson so far that fire is bad if you're not absolutely certain on how to, how to, how to go about it. Formally, you can say, I'm at the same position that I was as a, as a, as a, as a small uh, infant or a child. But obviously, this is a far higher form of knowledge than the simple notions of a child. And yeah, this is, this is a very simple anecdote, but I think it does show the general process of, of, of knowledge. The fact that by interacting with the objective world, we form general notions about it, which we then apply to the real world, world again when we, when we go about our, our lives. And through trial and error, we move from lower to higher forms of knowledge. Now, Hegel recognized this process, not just in the individual, but in the history of knowledge as such, in the history of humanity. He didn't see himself 
as apart from the history of scientific thought, uh, as if anyone at any time could just have come up with the same ideas of him, but it just so happened that, 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 that it was him, uh, because maybe he was such, such a genius or something. But for, for Hegel, the history of scientific thought was not a history of random ideas disconnected uh, by, by, and thought out by random and disconnected people. Rather, it was a process. It was a social process with its own lawfulness leading from lower, more simple and primitive forms of, of, of knowledge to higher, more complex and more advanced forms of, of, of thought. And every stage of this, this development, you have new ideas coming in, which play an enormous, enormous role in developing our understanding of the world and, and our place in it. But at the same time, each advance, each set of ideas bring within it the seeds of its own downfall, so to say. And at a certain stage, these ideas become, the new ideas, so to say, become old ideas, and they must give way to new ideas to come in their place. So what is true at one point in history uh, becomes inadequate and has to be replaced by something which is more true at another. But this doesn't mean that the old ideas are just lost forever, that all the experience that, that, that came before is just, just wiped off uh, and thrown out. Their essence is fundamentally retained in the new schools of thought which appear in, in the place. Now let's take the, the Ptolemaic system. This is the old paradigm of the universe which said that, that the earth was the center of, of our, our universe. Um, now before Ptolemy, astronomy was not really a science. There was people making, you know, developing astro astronomical theories, but this was kind of a secondary thing, a part of other disciplines basically. But what, what Ptolemy did was that he gathered all of these fragmented uh, pieces of theory into one great book of astronomical science. He basically synthesized all of the theories of his time, and this was a huge step forward for, for, for humanity. In essence, what he did was to establish astronomy as a specific field which could be systematically uh, studied. And for 1,300 years, this was the basis of, of, of astronomy, essentially. And it was within this framework that you had the development of, of, of a vast you know, array of theories, uh, mathematical models, and so on, some of which are still relevant today within, within certain uh, parameters. And it was also within this, this, uh, this framework that you had the development of tools, of telescopes, and all sorts of aggregates, which actually allowed us to see far, far further than, than we'd ever been able to before. And which, by doing this, laid the foundations for the downfall of the Ptolemaic system. And you had the rise of the Copernican system, which, which argued that the sun was, its, was the center of the universe. It's obviously not the entire truth, but it was far truer than the original notion uh, that, that we have. Um, yes. And, and it was exactly, precisely because of the full development of the Ptolemaic system that it could be replaced by a higher form of scientific thought. And again, the same thing uh, later on took place with the Copernican system, which, which was later replaced with, with, the, with the current model that we have today. Now, within each of these models, what was true in the, uh, the true elements of the former uh, uh, schools of thought remain uh, in the context of the new discoveries and advances of, of science. And if we look at the situation today, the really Herculean uh, uh, achievements of these thinkers 
have now become the basic knowledge that every school kid learns in school, and they have become the foundations of the new advances which can take place of science in, in future uh, generations. Now, this, this process takes place throughout the history of, of philosophy and science. And here, for us uh, and for Hegel, the past is just, it's not just some, you know, a set of unfortunate mistakes. This is sometimes when, when you hear about, oh, Ptolemaic system, they're so stupid, they thought the Earth was the center of, of the universe. <laughs> well, in fact, for them, the Earth was the center of the universe. They couldn't see much further. The reach of humanity was not that, 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 uh, that far. And as we increased our reach, our knowledge also uh, developed. And it was precisely because of that development that we could reach uh, what we have today. So what we have is not accidental, disconnected uh, uh, theories, but, but rather a, a form of ladder where one step of development uh, of each school of thought leads on to the next. Now, for Hegel, this is not just the way that philosophy develops. This is the general laws of development itself. And he, 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 he puts forward this, uh, this um, uh, metaphor of, of the plant, the, cycle, the life cycle of a plant, where you have the seed, uh, which is then negated by the bud, which is re replaced by the bud, and then the blossom, and then at a certain stage, the blossom disappears, and then the fruit becomes the, 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 the manifestation of, of, the, of the plant. And each of these stages basically exclude the other ones, and yet they're equally necessary, and together, what they form is the essence of the life cycle of a plant as a whole. At least in general terms, those are the laws of development according to, to Hegel. And uh, going, back to, now going back to philosophy, Hegel believed that his philosophy was the culmination of all previous schools of thought. In fact, he derived his ideas from a systematic critique of all of the previous philosophies. And in this way, his... his um, his, his doctrine was a revolutionary break, you can say, with everything that came before that. And at the same time, he, 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 he meticulously tried to preserve everything that was true, the true kernel of all of those previous schools of thought. And it was in this process that Hegel found, uh, the, the process of knowledge, in other, in other words, that Hegel found the key to his system. Now, according to him, the process of knowledge uh, you know, it, 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 through this process of knowledge, through, through countless trials and errors, uh, uh, generation after generation, the human mind is molded by the objective laws of our reality. And therefore, Hegel believed that the scientific study of, the, 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 of thought in itself, of thoughts and, and ideas in themselves, can give us an insight into the laws of nature as such. And this is a discovery that set Hegel apart from, from all of his contemporaries and the, the vast majority of philosophers who came before him. Because you see, up until Hegel's time, the, 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 one of the main weaknesses of all of philosophy had been that, the, that most schools of thought put forward a very rigid and unbridgeable gap between the objective world out there, everything we see and can touch and, and, and so on, and sense, and the thoughts inside of our, uh, our minds. This is what they call the so-called subject and object problem. How, how can thinking understand the world? How can the world connect to, to, to our thoughts, uh, thoughts and so on? But according to Hegel, this was a false way of dividing things up. This is an absolutely false division. According to him, there's only one world that exists. And this world exists objectively 
and independently of any one single individual uh, and, and their thoughts. Human beings and our thoughts, according to him, are just a part of this objective world. Uh, and therefore, we are capable of understanding its inner workings, uh, so to say. Of course, for Hegel, this is not a material world. Rather, it's a, it's a world of what he calls the absolute idea, uh, about what you know, Engels once said. You know, he, never, he said absolutely nothing about this, this absolute idea. Uh, uh, this is not the, uh, well, I mean, from what you can derive, this is not the, the, the ideas of any particular person, but a form of independently existing world spirit which, which permeates everything and which gives rise to uh, all of reality. And on this basis, yes, Hegel was a, was a f philosophical idealist, i.e., for him, ideas are the primary element uh, uh, of the world. And all idealism in the last instance is, leads to religion. And Hegel was a deeply religious person. In fact, he tried to prove Christianity by way of his, his, his philosophy. But nevertheless, his form of idealism was far more advanced than any other form of idealism, and in fact, any other philosophy of his time, precisely because it was an absolute form of idealism, which means that he recognized only one single reality which exists objectively and independently of human beings. Now, this was nothing short of, of a revolution, really, because uh, contrary to, the, to most of the philosophy of, of his time, which were often basically stale, mechanistic uh, kind of doctrines which were conjured up and, and kind of dragged over, over the world, Hegel believed that true ideas and a true philosophy could not be conjured up, could not just be imagined, but it had to be discovered by way of patient and systematic investigation into the workings of thought itself. Now, he starts this investigation on a very, very simple basis of, of pure being, he calls it. He says, well, you know, if we have to find out where to start, we have to say, what is it that we can attribute to everything? Well, that must be being. And the most general uh, uh, kind of elementary form of being can only be pure being, I, a being which is not defined in any way, which is not determined, it's not, it doesn't have any outer limit. We can't say, you know, this chair or that thing, because that would exclude other things, essentially. So we can't put any limitations on it. It has to be pure being. And if we try to think about it, such a being does not exist. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as, as pure being. Nothing exists without determinations, without boundaries, without being divided from, 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 from other things. Um, and uh, therefore, in this pure shape, being becomes nothing, <laughs> because there's nothing that, that kind of distinguishes this form of being from nothing. There's, there's actually nothing we can, we can attribute it to. But this is not just some empty form of nothingness. We can definitely say that it's not pure being. <laughs> and therefore, what you have, just to cut it very short, what you have is pure being uh, becoming nothing and nothing becoming a pure being again. And here you have, therefore, a new category of becoming, of change, essentially, which encompasses both of these categories of being and nothing uh, in itself. Um, and what Hegel is trying to paint here is the fundamental principles of dialectics. The fact that, that the process of change and becoming 
is at the basis for all real being. That all phenomena taken to the logical conclusions will eventually turn into their, their, their opposite. Whether we talk about galaxies or stars or planets or life, things come into being and as soon as they do so, they start to pass away. And once they pass away, another process starts for other things to, 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 to come into being. The, the constant change and the rise and fall of phenomena, in other words, is, a, is a, the fundamental mode of existence of all of reality. Everything changes. Everything comes into being and passes away. But this is not something that's imposed from outside. There's nothing making things, so to say, come into being and pass away, but rather is driven by its own internal contradictions. Just like we could see, just the thought of pure being inevitably <laughs> impels us to, 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 towards nothing. Uh, therefore, the, 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 the seeds of destruction is present in all, <laughs> in all, in all creation and vice versa. Death is inherent to, uh, inherent to life. And life, of course, is a result of dead elements, uh, which, is, which is the majority of, of nature. However, this change is not a, a gradual change necessarily. What we have, in other words, are periods of periodic of, of, of accumulation of contradictions, which at a certain point give way to a rapid acceleration and a, and a qualitative change. When we have a, a fetus grows very steadily and slowly for nine months in the womb, and then at some point, it has, to, it has to come out. And the other way, you can have a long period of a declining health, uh, but at a certain stage, death comes and hits uh, rapidly. But if you look at society, you can have long periods of accumulation of, of rage and anger by, by, due to the undermining of the living conditions of ordinary people, and nothing seems to happen on, on the surface. Uh, everyone thinks, ah, people are too, you know, people, are people are too, too, too selfish, they don't want to do anything. And suddenly you can have a situation, like we see in, in Sudan today, three years of nothing happening, and one, one kind of change makes the whole thing uh, explode. A any other revolution, essentially, is driven by the same fundamental uh, principles. Now, these are not the explicit conclusions that Hegel uh, 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 drew, but it's not difficult to see the enormous revolutionary implications that his ideas uh, could have. Now, these principles that Hegel developed, he did so on the basis, as I said, on a systematic investigation of the laws of scientific thinking, which for him uh, reflects the, the, the laws of the world as such. And in fact, according to him, this mode of thinking, this mode of investigation, it comes very naturally and instinctively to all uh, human, uh, human being. But like, just like before when we talked about the progress in, in uh, philosophy, both today and, and at his time, there are those who object very vehemently against these ideas uh, of Hegel. According to the empiricist school, uh, which at that time was a very primitive form of materialism, uh, which existed at, at Hegel's time. Today we have a, the positivists who are, who are also a form of empiricists. Now they say that um, there's, no, there's no point in such investigations. They believed, and they believe essentially today, that truth can only come about via sense experience. In other words, in observing uh, uh, the world. And that might be true to a certain point, but however, they, they also maintain that there's nothing beyond the immediate appearance of the things that, that we see. 
and that therefore an inv investigation into the world is not going to lead us to any form of more general notions about the reality that, that, that we live in. Now, the famous example of this is that if we see a million white swans, we cannot deduce on that basis that the next one we see is also going to be swans, is also going to be white. Of course, apparently there are some black swans in, in, in Australia. But, uh, but, but they say that there's, we cannot, there's no lawfulness in nature, there's no general underlying currents uh, forming nature as, as we know it. Um, and therefore, uh, therefore we, we, better, we better leave it alone. Of course, Hegel then objects and says, well, if that's the case, then we cannot utter a single word because every single word that we use is a generalization. If I say me, it's a general a generalization of myself, not the person I am right here this moment, but me as I've always been and developed up until now and probably into the future. Uh, and if we, even if we say a swan, we don't refer to any particular swan. We, we refer to the concept of swans, whether they're black or white. And we have a certain notion of the lawfulness of, of, of what that entails. And we expect that to, to, to be the same in other phenomena that we see and recognize as swans. In our daily lives, everywhere we go and everything, every, everything we see, we meet an infinite amount of phenomena every single, every single moment. And whether we want it or not, at every single point, our minds are hard at work trying to understand the fundamental uh, principles behind these things, the deeper nature and the causes of the things that we see. Even the most banal things you can say you know, about make, making food. You need to have a basic understanding of the general properties of the ingredients you put in, whether it's you know, carrots or uh, whatever, or salt, and how much of what you, you, you should put in or not in order to benefit our uh, aims, in other words. And the bigger our aims, the more important it is to understand the universal principles which underlie our world. Now, when we start our investigation into this world, themes, things just seem very, um, appear just very immediate. You know, this is this, is this. This, is a, uh, this is a computer. That's Jack. That's the window. That, that's the moon. Um, but if you think about it, that's not a sufficient explanation. If you really think about any of these things, it's not really sufficient to give us an understanding of what this entails. Uh, Jack is, is different from all other uh, uh, human beings. And furthermore, he and every other human being are in a state of constant, ch constant change and flux. Every single moment, his body, his mind is constantly interacting with the environment uh, uh, around him. And none of these instances, these infinite instances of human beings uh, in and of themselves can tell us much about, uh, in isolation, can tell us much about what a human being is. So therefore, we, we realize, and Hegel leads us to that, 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 uh, that what is immediately there is not the whole truth. That, and, there, and, we, and we are spurred forward, so to say, to find a deeper form of, uh, of truth and try to find out what is then the common thing which goes through every single instance of human beings, for instance, uh, uh, I, I meet. Of these billions and billions of billions of, of human beings which have lived on this earth, come into being and passed away, what's the common thing that persists in every single uh, one of them? And according to, uh, to Hegel, here we enter the sphere of essence. Now, what do we mean by, by essence? Are we talking about some 
magical potion <laughs> that, that can be extracted from people, something existing independently, like a soul that, that's then imp, imp, implemented into other things. Well, the ancient Greek philosopher uh, Plato was, was of this opinion. According to him, there was a realm different, different than our realm, more real than our realm, in which there were these, uh, these archetypes, these universal archetypes, or ideas as he called them, of different phenomena. There would be something for a human and a table and all of these things that we, that we, that we have general uh, words for. And then the individual phenomena that we meet in, in our lives today would just be crude, bad carbon copies, essentially, of these uh, archetypes. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, this, this is a very problematic uh, thing because how can you account, how can one archetypal human account for all of these different uh, human beings? Or all of the instances of the lives of these, uh, would there be, you know, would there be a, uh, an archetype for a one minute old baby and a one minute and one second old baby and a one year and one minute and one year? <laughs> you can go, go on and on. There will be a very crowded uh, kind of uh, uh, other worlds, so to say. Uh, and, and would there be archetypal uh, forms for Aristotle and Socrates and Jack and every other human being that's ever, ever, ever existed? Uh, sorry, he can take it. Don't worry. He, he's got uh, thick skin. Um, well, uh, the fact is that as we investigate nature, we cannot see any trace of such universals interfering in it. In fact, uh, in every phenomenon that science has investigated, the explanation of it has come on its own account. Biology today is, is fully capable of explaining to a large extent the mechanisms that go into forming a human being from the first cell divisions to an adult human being uh, and even right up until uh, the, their death. And we can see that the basis for human development is not, uh, is not some, some outer force that's, that's interfering and kind of molding us, but it's the inner contradictions of the cells and the body of human beings and human society itself that forms, of, forms us biologically, uh, uh, socially, uh, and, and so on. And it's this constant interplay with the environment and with itself that every phenomenon basically uh, uh, develops comes into being and uh, goes out of it. So what we and Hegel call essence, in other words, is merely the sum total of the relations of, a, of, different, uh, of, of different phenomena in their interaction, uh, which then give rise to simple principles, in other words, laws, which determine the development of, of different things. The, the, the hydrogen atom, for instance, due to its composition, has a positive charge. The oxygen atom has a negative charge, more or less twice the strength of, of the hydrogen. And therefore, uh, two hydrogen atoms can, can, can bond with one oxygen, oxygen atom to, 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 to form a, a water molecule. The law of water in this manner is not something superimposed, but it's the result of the, of the, of the inner contradictions of the atoms uh, themselves. The essence of phenomena, in other words, is not something separate from them, but it's, but it's a part of them and is a sum total of their relations. And the laws which come out of this, the principles behind the development of, of these uh, contradictions, those are the laws that philosophy must set, about, uh, set itself about to uncover. 
at the most general level. Uh, however, of course, there's a problem here. As I explained before, Hegel is an idealist. For him, all of these things are a reflection in the final analysis of this world spirit, the absolute idea that is essentially God, which underlies the whole of our reality, the reality that we experience. The problem is that Hegel here falls in the same trap as the people that he was, he was criticizing. This man who is so opposed to schematicism of dragging something on top of reality has essentially created the biggest and most convoluted <laughs> schema of them all. Because if we look at the nature and reality, where is this world spirit? Where is any trace of this world spirit of, or of this absolute idea. There's nowhere to be seen. And the problem, of course, is that Hegel actually uh, anticipated the greatest revolutions in science that took place in the 19th century, all of which sh would show that dialectics are not the laws of some, some, some mystical element, some mystical creature, but the, but the, the essential laws of, of nature uh, itself. Um, yes, and that is... sorry. Yeah, and that is the fundamental difference between Marxism and Hegelianism, that we are philosophical materialists, which means that for us there's only one world, and in that we, we, we absolutely agree with Hegel, but this is not the world of God or spirit or idea, this is the sensible material world that we live in and we experience every single day. In other words, is nature, and there's nothing beyond uh, this nature. In other words, nature is, is, is absolute. And nature is fundamentally lawful in itself. Whereas for Hegel, objective ideas, you know, ideas <laughs> were the formative principles of nature, we believe that nature is in itself self-organizing. Human beings are material beings, uh, and our thoughts and our ideas are just reflections of the material world that we engage with and that we interact with. The task of philosophy uh, for Marxists is not to conjure up a schema or, or, or law of reality and then drag it, uh, kind of extrapolate it on, on top of it, but it's to uncover these laws by investigating nature and society as itself with an uncompromising materialist outlook. And in this, say, we, in this sense, we can say that, that philosophy really ends with Hegel and that Marxism, uh, which, 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 which picks up from where Hegel left, is not a philosophy in the classical sense of it. It's not a fixed schema. It's not a good idea or a genius idea or, or educated guess that we try to drag onto the world. It's, it's, it's a method of viewing the world and our society and a tool to discover its inner lawfulness in order to assist humanity in reaching the goals and aims that, we, that, that, that it set itself. But this doesn't mean that we discard Hegel we just throw him out into the dustbin and say, oh, it doesn't matter, he got it all wrong. Uh, or the, 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 the many, many great philosophers who came uh, before him. We don't claim that we somehow found this magical formula that was just happened to be lost and uh, no, one just, no one just happened to think of it until Marx and, Marx and Engels did for thousands of years. And, and, and just like Hegel, we don't see the rise and fall of ideas, the history of ideas, as a random uh, process, uh, but we see it as a continuous process of generation upon generation, moving from lower to higher forms of thought in a, in a progressive approximation to the truth 
about the laws of nature uh, and, and the world that we, that we live in. We see Marxism as the condensed expression, uh, as an expression of the condensed experience of the whole of mankind itself. And we put ourselves emphatically after a long line of, of thinkers going from the ancient Greeks, Socrates, Aristotle, the French materialists, Hegel, uh, 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 and so on. All of these, they form our heritage. And while we're not blind to their shortcomings, we must defend them and the treasure trove of ideas that, that they left us from all of these attacks that we see in, in, in academia, uh, you know, coming from, from those, the, the defenders of the established order, so to say, as a means to, to promote ig ignorance and regression. And I'll end it there. Thank you very much. Lenin stated that without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Without a revolutionary theory, we are bound to take in the ideas that surround us. Under capitalism, these are ideas that ultimately defend the status quo. In Wellrad's upcoming book on the history of philosophy, Alan Woods looks at the development of philosophical thinking from the ancient Greeks all the way through to Marx and Engels, who brought together the best of previous thinking to produce the Marxist philosophical outlook, which looks at the real material world, not as a static, immovable reality, but one that is constantly changing and moving according to laws that can be discovered. Through this, we can learn how philosophy becomes an indispensable tool in the struggle for the revolutionary transformation of society. Pre-order your copy now at www.marxist.com slash HOP. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marxist Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.